listening to ComedySlamRadio.com. From our studios to the world, we bring you the finest in quality entertainment. So pop some popcorn, grab a smooch buddy, and settle in for another fine show. From ComedySlamRadio.com. Good evening and welcome to ComedySlamRadio.com and the Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank Show. We are fortunate enough today to have Paul Olin Smith in the studio with us today. How you doing, Paul? Doing good. Good. You doing good? Doing good. You remember to fut- shut off your phone, you bastard? Put it off yes, the I did. You, you have your proper I'm a, radio I'm intercat? I'm going to do mine. I already did mine. Just double check it. We have... Fucking Carl LeBove calling in tonight. Is that the shit or what? My favorite comic. Best of all time. There you go. That's shit. You got Carl on? Let's go. Let's bring Carl in right away and get it going. Carl, how you doing? I'm good. How are you tonight? Not too bad, Carl. How are you? Uh, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Now, we also got Paul Olin Smith, who you did a little work with at uh, Side Splitters a couple years back. That's right. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Good. So how long ago was it that you guys worked at Side Splitters together, Paul? 2008. That was my very last week ever working Side Splitters, unfortunately. Oh, yeah? Yep. Well, you got to go out with a bang. You had Carl, man. <laughs> what a way to go. I didn't want to go out. I love that room. Right. I told if- him if he didn't bring my beers on time, he'd probably never work there again. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. So wh- where are you at? You're up in New York right now? Yeah, I'm in New York for about another two months. You got a one-man show coming up, what, tomorrow or in a day or two? Uh, yeah, tomorrow night. I'm, I'm working on the one-man show, so it's in the, you know, it's in the works right now. All right. So I'm developing out here, and I'm working several different clubs, uh, performing half hours to get the chunk of it. But it's, a, it's in progress. I'm going to showcase it next month, so I've got another 10, 15 performances. That's great. And w- where is it going to be showcased at? I'm doing the underground, New York Underground Comedy Festival. Oh, that's great. So we're going to present it there for the first time. Cool. One place that I, I have not done comedy yet, I mean, outside of Florida, anywhere, but I'm from, from New York. I'd love to get up there one of these days and do some comedy. I don't know if I could ever live in New York and do comedy, though. That's a rough city to go back to. Well, you know, when, when I was a young comic, it was the first city that ever kicked my butt. It was just one of those cities I just couldn't find the heartbeat of being comfortable and connecting with the audience. And I just always had scars about it for probably four or five years. And then one night I had a show in the city. It was a New Year's show. And whatever that was broke down, that wall that was there for me psychologically. And I just got it. So after that, that was the last frontier for me performance-wise. Once I knew I could get them, you know, I was just comfortable everywhere. It was the last place where I wanted to connect with everybody, and it finally worked out. That's great. That's like that's what broke it in for you. That's that's great. I know, like, Paul, you tell me sometimes you don't like playing um, venues that have uh, music and stuff or bars because you don't go over as well there. I don't like doing venues where they don't know it's a comedy show when they show up to. So your goal is to yeah. overcome that so you can become better. you got to keep doing more of those shows, right? Isn't that what you did, Carl? You kept going to New York until you mastered it? Uh, yeah, but no, I didn't, like, jump on it. I just would get booked there, so I'd have to go. And I didn't look forward to it. And I realized one day it was my mindset. So, you know, I was I created that New York for me was the hardest place for me to get over, for me to perform. 
it seemed like those New Yorkers didn't get me kind of vibe. And in fact, everybody's the same everywhere, just they talk differently. But they all want, you know, a good life, take care of the family, uh, live their dreams. So, you know, once I went up there and just didn't make it important, whether it was personal comfort or a little bit of success, whatever it was for me that got me over that particular show, after that, you know, it was, it was all uphill, you know. Sounds that sounds great. But I mean, you know, Paul and I know we know these gigs where you know there's nothing worse than doing your show, and then right after you're done, they go, "Okay, now it's time to get back to the strippers." <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that was one of my first paid gigs. Was at a strip joint. It was a crappy strip joint, but it was a strip joint. That wasn't a strip joint. They thought they were. Yeah, I mean, that's why I said it was a crappy strip joint. <laughs> that's <what> I know. <laughs> you're a professional. That's all you do with your money is go to strip joints and buy fedoras, Paul. <laughs> Well, you know, we remember those gigs where, the, you know, it's 25 bucks, it's a two-hour drive, and five of you would pile in the car and drive down. You know, I used to go to San Diego, and we did a strip club there for about a year, so we'd do it every three or four months because there's always a group of, uh, always a different group of 12 guys. So nice. they didn't know your act, you know, so they would stop <laughs> the strip show. All right, all right, honey, get off the stage. Okay, we're going to do comedy, and all you hear was groans. Oh. <laughs> And we'd come out, and everybody would do five minutes and, you know, go buy a pizza, get in the car, and talk about our sets all the way home again. There you go. When I did the strip joint, I had some guy give me a $2 tip to get off the stage. I was like, <laughs> I'm coming out ahead of the game. I'm out of here. You get off the stage? <laughs> Hell, yeah, I got off the stage. That was 10% of the amount of money I got paid to go there. And I was already up there for 15 minutes talking to people that didn't want to hear me. The question well, Although Question I did is, have the biggest boobs in the bar that night. Did you give the money back to one of the girls? Hell no. Those girls were like, <laughs> I had the biggest boobs. I may be a fat guy, but my boobs should not be bigger than every stripper in Single the building. Single girl there. Yeah. yeah. How do you, well, you, you know, have maybe you started the craze, pole comedy. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I, I have one of the questions that I like to ask everybody uh, is, what originally brought you to or gave you the idea to get on stage at an open mic or just what drove you to do it the very first time? Uh, my answering first or Paul answering first? Uh, I don't really care when Paul did. <laughs> <laughs> we can ask Paul, Paul first. Paul, you but, must be local tonight, right? <laughs> yeah, Paul is a local guy, but I talk to Paul all the time. But I think, I think Paul would be interested to know the same question. Well, for me, you know, my dad was in the Air Force, and uh, I moved around a lot. So I was always the new kid. And somewhere around, you know, 10 or 11, we, our whole family, I'm the oldest of three, we, we moved to Japan. And uh, I had asthma in Japan. For some reason, I developed asthma there. And um, so I was sick a lot the first year. I missed a lot of school. And one day at home on AM radio, they didn't have FM yet, AM radio, uh, the Beatles' Revolution song came out, Revolution. And I just thought it was the greatest sounding guitar I'd ever heard in my life. Besides being a Beatles fan, I just that song to me was gritty and it was rough and dirty and the guitar sounded so great. And so I told my dad, I go, God, I, I want to learn how to play the guitar. So since I was home so much, he worked extra hard, uh, got a side job and bought me a guitar. Awesome. So I knew how hard my father had worked for that guitar, so I promised myself I'd learn how to play, and I played it and played it and played it to where I got pretty proficient within a year, and then I entered a contest, uh, you know, I think it was eighth grade, seventh grade, 
talent con- contest, and I won it with a song that I'd written. And that, that, that feeling of connecting on stage with an audience where they were just so quiet, they were so into what I was doing, and they made me feel comfortable. I, there was just a bond there that I really liked. And my dad was a comedy fan. I was raised on every album growing up. So he loved Pryor and, and uh, George and all these other guys. And, and, and Justin Wilson, who's a Cajun comic, who later in his life became a chef on TV. All these guys, we had all their albums. And so I developed a sense of humor dragging a guitar around all the time. I looked like John Lennon when I was 12, 13, 14. <laughs> I had long hair split down the middle. I hadn't grown into my nose yet. And, you know, I was just a little John Lennon guy. And I had my bands and I had all my stuff. And um, it was just really cool to uh, do the performance uh, of weekends, playing in dances and stuff. And I started being funny with that stuff. And then my movies, watching those movies, uh, Pink Panthers, all that stuff, I went, wow, I'd really like to do this. Uh, and uh, for me, I thought it was acting. So when I got out of school, uh, I lived in California. I went to acting school for three years and my teacher suggested I try it. And I just gave it a shot one night. I went to a comedy club and, and just tried it one time and liked it a lot. But I invited about 10 of my friends. They drove five hours from Northern California down to Los Angeles and they put me on a list and I went to the comedy store in Westwood one time and we all got there early. It took us four or five hours to get there. We had dinner and then we went to the comedy club, put my name in a hat and you had to wait for your name to be drawn out. And out of all those comics and that whole night of comedy, my name was the last name drawn and I walked up on stage. I followed Elaine Boozler who was Hmm. working on a, a set for television followed her and her professionalism and then i went up and all that was left was my friends wow so my i walked on stage and my buddy said carl we just drove five hours we could have done this in your garage <laughs> and that was so much fun just that adventure of trying to get to it wasn't another uh, year or two that i actually found stand up in texas and went and tried it because my dad read a newspaper article they were looking for uh, comedians and i went and tried it and that connection that night of the stuff that I'd written, just like a song, because I'm from the music background, so the, the, the stories that I'd written out, and the way I'd planned the humor, and all that stuff with the ebb and flow of a song, the high part of the song, the low part, the grabbing part, the refrain, all that stuff was the same for me uh, with stand-up. And the first time I did it, whether or not I did good, I don't know. All I know is I was proud of it. You know, I, I really dug that the the work involved, the twist, uh, then the reaction, and I fell in love with it the first time I, I gave myself to it. So that's that changed me. That day changed me. So I was 20. Wow. That's great. How old were you when you started, Paul? I was 24 when I first got on stage. for the fun. I wanted to do it since I was like 18. Yeah. Uh-huh. Never, never got around to it for six years. And did you miss it? Did when you when you thought God, I got to do this, or did you just blow it off and not make it important, or did someone say something to you one day and you went, it was, "Yeah, I think I'll do it tonight." It was a bunch of things. Like I, I, I remember every time I went to a comedy club, I always enjoyed it, but I was thinking like, I could, I could do this. Like I can be that funny. And honestly, I've said it about every single comic I've ever seen except Carl. Carl's the only guy I've seen. I could never be that funny. 
everyone else, I think I can eventually be that good. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do it. I had a, had a girlfriend that uh, wasn't really supportive. And then we broke yep. up years later. I uh, was working real hard. I was, I was making good money, but it was all I was focused on. I finally got tired of, of working and worried about money. And I was like, I'm going to do something fun. And I, I wasn't sure how to handle the, the uh, you know, public speaking aspect of it. I wasn't sure if right. I could handle getting in front of people. So I went to Toastmasters for a while to make sure I had that uh, out of wraps and uh, took a couple of comedy classes before I ever got on stage. So I was ready when I got up. That's cool. That's interesting because most people think that, you know, when they meet us and they were comics, oh, you just walked up there and did it. And just already in that statement, look what you did to prepare for it. A, you had to dedicate yourself in a relationship. And because she didn't believe in you, you didn't go for it. And then as soon as you broke up, you felt loose, live, and you went and studied it, studied the speaking aspect of it, uh, the stance, the power of the microphone and all that stuff just to get to a laugh. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, was, it took three months for I, I, when I started studying, I guess you could say, before I ever got on stage. I went to shows three, four, five times a week just watching. Did you work out in front of the mirror in your bedroom? Yep. Yep. Recorded myself, played it back. I was doing my, when the first time I did stand-up, my sister walked in on me in the bathroom when I was in Texas at the time. And uh, she walked in, and I was standing in front of the mirror, and she goes, oh, hurry up, Carl. I got to go to the bathroom. Mom, he's in there doing his act. <laughs> for me i kind of got into comedy for a totally different reason um I, I never thought i would be into comedy i always watched you know loved watching growing up the first people i remember really watching was uh george burns and uh-huh. uh red skelton yep and then you know then it was the eddie murphy's and bill cosby but i was always enthralled by all the class that george Byrne had and just the amazingness of Red Skelton to me, but all these Red years... Red one of my heroes, too. That's awesome. Uh, about, I guess just about two years ago, I decided, you know, I had uh, gone through some loss in life, and I was just in a place where at work, you know, I was always in commission sales, and everything was kind of like teetering down, and I didn't know what to do to pick it up. But always being in sales, I had always, you know, there was times I sold houses and you got groups of 10 or 15 people that you're speaking to. So in my mind, I said, you know what? I think I'm comfortable talking in front of people already. So what the heck can I do to amp it up? And that's when I called this little place at uh, Coconuts Comedy Club at a hookah lounge uh, here in in Clearwater. And I called them up Uh and I said, if I wanted to try stand-up comedy, what do I got to do? And he goes... Get five minutes, practice it, and don't make a jerk out of yourself when you go on stage. He goes, you don't have to be funny, but come with material. Don't come up and not have a punchline or don't come up and make it up before you get here. Right. So, you know, at work, I was always a funny guy, they said. So I said, I'm just going to talk about the things that happened at work first. And it was really just to kind of, and I always say, to gain my testicular fortitude back. Uh Uh-huh. I got to look up some of those words. Testicular fortitude. (laughs) I stole that from Mick Foley, Mankind, one of the greatest wrestlers (laughs) ever. I will, I will give you your props, Mick. Uh, but that was what it was. I never in a million years, and I did bring a couple of friends. Luckily for me, there was only like three comics and the four or five friends that I brought there. But I brought them so that I wouldn't back out. I said, if I have friends here, I can't back out. But I, I never expected to get addicted or to want to do it a second or to continue to do it two years later and then have the show. So. It's been yeah, an amazing true. experience. I, I also didn't expect to fall in love with it. You know, I just wanted to try it. 
Because I, you know, people had said you'd be natural at this or you'd be good at this, that kind of vibe. And uh, it's interesting how, you know, your uh, things unfold when you j- take a risk, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll try it. Not even knowing that it's, you know, for me, it was going to be my life. It was just something I wanted to try. Do you remember? It was a great age. I was starting a new life. And, you know, yeah, I'll give this a shot. Just see what this feels like. So how far into trying it? You know, were you a few months? Were you like, I'm ready, I'm addicted, this is what I'm going to do? Or was it from the very first time? Oh, no, I came back that night and knew that I was going to be a stand-up comic. All right. Because I had been in acting for three years before in Los Angeles. I had left uh, high school and I had a a great uh, teacher in my senior year that taught a drama class that I had so many good credits. I was a good student and I had, my senior year was just a blow by. I didn't have to take any hard classes hardly. And I had this drama class I took because there was, you know, three or four good looking ladies that were in the, in the class. And I went, I'll take that. Denise is in there and Tanya's in that class. I'll do that. And I just, I, I was great at it. I loved it. You know, creating characters and, uh, they made me the commissioner of assemblies my senior year. So I had to write all the sketches for, so my teacher helped me set that stuff up. I got a classes early, all kinds of stuff. So I got to write little 10 minute comedy things every Friday, all the way through my senior year of school. So that was training. And then he got me into an acting class in Los Angeles. And I studied with, uh, Don Greer, who was Jane Greer's brother. She was, you know, engaged to Howard Hughes. She was in probably 30 films in the fifties and um he was just took me under his wing so I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, studying in Los Angeles and I did a movie called High Riders that did well overseas and I made money. I got in the Screen Actors Guild and I bought my dad out of all of his debts because of all the things he had done for me in my life. And That's I paid awesome. off all of his debts and he got out, retired from the Air Force and moved to Texas to start a gas station business and I went down there to help him and that's how I found the stand up club. And what was that first club? The Comedy Works. All right. And is Houston, that uh, Houston County Workshop? Okay. Is that where you started meeting some of the other comics that you uh, started traveling with? Really, like uh, Kinnison and uh, the Outlaws of Comedy, and Craig Greenlee and uh, Ron Shock, and he came a couple years earlier. The original group was just a bunch of great guys. Uh, we would get together at night and, and, you know, we actually painted and helped build the comedy club. Uh, it was a part of a very successful theatrical group they had there and there were no comedy clubs in Texas and they wanted to try and see if enough people would come and try out. And if they did, then they'd, they'd give them a little 60, 70 seat room next door because they had the space. So they did that and that's where I met all these guys and we ate, drank and breathed stand up. Nice. And Texas is supposed to be a pretty good market for comedy now, isn't it? I know it's not New York or L.A., but I, I, well, I understand Texas has got a lot of clubs now. Yeah, well, you know, I, I go to Fort Worth every once in a while. i got a friend there, Randy Butler, who has two or three clubs, hyenas down there. Uh, but I think Texas has a history of uh, sharp, uh, outspoken, uh, outlawish. I mean, it's just, you know, because that was established so long ago with us, that I think a lot of these guys have kept that tradition going, and a lot of them back each other up. So 
I always find it interesting when I meet a bunch of guys from Texas out in L.A. or New York. It's always a couple guys, and they're always watching after each other. You know, I think a lot of comedy now is singular, and if I just do it two years, I can get a TV show and that kind of stuff. Well, back then, it was like it was new territory. Nobody had even done it. No one had a club. So, you know, to be able to attack it, there was only several clubs in the country, the Comedy Store, and then, of course, the Improvs out in New York and all these other little places that were just starting to sprout and make a name for themselves. Do you have a a favorite venue that you like to perform at now? Uh, no, I, I have a favorite mindset. So pretty much wherever I go right now, uh, I don't know what it is about uh, changes in your life, but you know I love what I do. So I like the person that I am now and that I've grown into. Uh, I like to perform. I always have. I like the res- the responses afterwards. I like the conversations. I like what it triggers. Uh, I'm enjoying the hell out of this one-man experience. I mean, it's not even a fully developed show yet, but it's the best responses that I've ever gotten in my life because it's so much different from stand-up. It's a mixture of real-life stories and and um, some of my street music that I, that I you know, I'm from the street. I played on the street when I first started stand-up in Houston. I used to go out and play by Rice University, try to make 20 or 30 bucks a day so I could eat because we weren't working comedians yet. We were just developing, you know, so... I lived on the streets and lived in my car and played guitar. So I'm going back to that in my one man show because a lot of you know most people don't know I ever did that. Yeah, I didn't so I'm know enjoying that part that. of it. Did you know about the music part? Yeah, I knew about the music. All right, knew a little bit about mm-hmm. it. I don't there think I've go. ever seen you play uh, guitar, but I, I know you've uh, used to bring it. No, out I've never done it in my act. I I usually travel with it and I have it in my hotel or my condo, whatever, and and I'll bring it to the club and sit around afterwards when everybody's doing checkout and. I'll play and that kind of thing. You know, I just I love hanging with other musicians. I mean, that's what made it so much fun for Sam and I is because we were such music freaks. Uh, we just loved guitar and to meet all of our heroes and to, you know, to get to jam with people that we could never imagine meeting. And that guitar breaks that wall down. You know. Yeah, I mean, comedy is great, but and as much as we touch people, I think everybody gets touched it whether whatever kind of music it is people are a little bit more drawn to it no matter what it's a it's a, i don't know it's a, just a different expression or maybe because it's not so solo you know right right well you know i've always i've always played in plays my mom didn't want me singing and playing really loud so i grew up writing a lot of instrumentals so what i found was that was my emotional state was coming through my guitar play so i can sit down for hours and play the guitar and never repeat myself, and it's just emotions. You know, you can get vibes from that. So that's what I'm doing in the one-man show. I'm playing a minute or two of a song, and then I'm telling you a story from any part of my life because they're all stories that are about change, uh, when your life stopped, when your teenage years stopped, when your, you know, when you when love came in your life, uh, when drama happened, when death came to visit, all these different things, and it's about the story of, of my life. The way you're describing that and something when I had Tom Driesen on the show a couple of months back, he had said to me one of his goals in the show, and it sounds similar to what you could be doing, is uh, he he likes to be able to make the the audience laugh, change it totally where he talks about stories about like Frank Sinatra when he passed and then bring it back to laughter again. And he said that was one of the hardest things to do. So, I mean, that's 
how hard have you have you gotten it to that point and brought it back yet? Uh, I've I've had some six or seven performances now, and whatever it is that I'm searching for, I think I found the the, the nugget of it uh, two performances ago. It really meshed. Uh, it was the best response, and it was the most comfortable I was dealing with a guitar uh, and performing and remembering that you know they're there for uh, to be taken on a ride. You know, it's my version of a movie. So I did four shows that were an hour and a half long, and I wanted just to tell as many stories as I could to find out what stories were going to be important. Uh, those shows, people liked them, but I didn't because I didn't feel that you know I could ever charge anybody for those shows. That was it was. It's not that it's self-indulgent. It's just that it was too heavy. You know, there's just too many. You know, I've lived a phenomenal story. So once I get into the heavy stuff, they wouldn't, they wouldn't come back to the laughter later. They were still shocked by the heavy. Yeah. Right. So it was really hard to bring them back. So two performances ago, I went up and just told a lot of fun stories and created so much personality in the beginning of the show and knocked off a lot of the heavy stories that I'm not going to need. It's not important it's right. just a part of my life, but it's not important to the story that I'm sharing. So it's all about editing. And I learned that from, you know, being a doorman at the comedy store for four years and watching Richard Pryor and Robin Williams and all these guys work out. But Richard was the greatest lesson for me. I mean, he, he would do, you know, he did his stand-up was about his real life and what he was going through. And I heard stories that no one will ever, you know, they never heard because he did them for about a week and then he dropped them. But they were phenomenal stories, you know. He just couldn't find the the total funny in it. He didn't find the funny that made him happy, so he dropped it. So that's when I went, well, it's all about editing. Speaking of stories, I'm just curious. I've, I've heard some of your stories before, and they, uh, they're they pretty amazing. What What's your, your best comedy story that you love to tell people since you've been in the business? Not necessarily something you say on stage, but just something that's happened. Well, you just reminded me of something. So I'm going to tell you my favorite joke, because you know me. I'm not a joke. I don't yeah. tell jokes. But I heard this one from a, a guy probably 10 years ago, and it's, it's one of those jokes that comics get, but, the, but uh, you know, uh, what do we call it? The, the audience never really gets it, so it's, I've never done it on stage. It's, I usually tell this joke to other comics. So here it is. It sets up with the guy, a classic guy who wants to get in the show business. The circus comes through town. Uh, he runs down, and he says, who, who, who hires? Because I want to work. I want to travel the world, and I, this is what I've always wanted to do, and I can't believe you guys are here. So they introduce him to the foreman. The foreman goes, you want to work and travel? He goes, yep. And he goes, you're going to start at the very bottom. He goes, I don't care. I'm going to pay my dues. He goes, all right, put this rubber vest on, this rubber glove, and this long stick with a ball on the end of it, and follow me. So he walks me across the grounds, and they get to the elephant's tent. They walk inside the elephant tent, and there's three elephants, a baby elephant, a middle-aged elephant, and a very old elephant. He goes, your job is to take that stick and plunge it in their butts and make them shit before they go out in front of the kids. <laughs> he goes, ah. Oh. He goes, I know. You start at the bottom. So he walks up to the young, small elephant. He lifts his tail. And he sticks his stick all the way in the butt, pulls it out. <laughs> shits all over him. He goes, oh, God. He wipes himself off. He goes over to the middle-aged elephant, pulls the tail up, sticks the stick up in there, pulls it up. <laughs> oh, God. He goes up to the old elephant, lifts the tail, sticks the stick all over the stick in the elephant's ass, and the elephant turns around and goes, hey, how's the crowd? 
<laughs> so when you're around long enough there's going to be a lot of sticks up your ass but it's show business buddy how's the crowd <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> I can see why you save it for the comedians yeah, exactly it's not you know they don't get it they're not they're not in our business they don't know what it's like what we go through to get to that stage so cool but story-wise, let's see. Um, I, you know, so many times, you know, I've been doing this 33 years. I guess there's been those times where you think you're going to give up, whatever it is. You know, life's too hard, divorce, uh, many other tragedies that fly along. And all it takes is, you know, a kind gesture or one person to say that one thing to you that propels you to just get through another day, you know, um, there's been so many times where, once I was in Vegas and I was, God, I just hated life and nothing was good and I didn't know what I was going to do and money was tight and I had $20 and I had four more days to go and I had $20 in Vegas, which is just a crime to only have $20 and you have four one more days to go to gig. And, uh, I took 10 of it downstairs to get a free beer. If you played, you know, if you put 10 bucks in, they give you a free beer. So I went and put 10 bucks in. I was just going to milk the beer, take the 10 out, go cash it, come back and do it again, you know? And, uh, I put the 10 in and my buddy was the bartender. His name was Jimmy. He came up and he leaned up on my machine and hit the max credit, which was, you know, $1.25. And I hit a Royal flush for $4,800. Awesome. <laughs> Can't on the first that. hand. Nice. And just those kind of things, you know, I mean, it paid off my bill. It paid off a debt. Uh, it made me feel like a king. Uh, I ended up not being, you know, in my room, but instead I went out and hung out with other comics and took them to lunch and, you know, just had a great week. And that just, that got me through, you know, it just, it got me through that, that week of God, I hate life kind of vibe. Cause magic happened. I think that's what I like about our business is magic can happen at any time. It, you know, it could be the right performance. It could be something you say. It could be, uh, you know, somebody you meet after a show. Yeah. Um, you just never know because we're in the business of making people happy. And as long as we are on stage, then, you know, then it can be magical. Yeah, it's amazing. You talk about that. I was just talking about this last week with the comic. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was doing a show in Ocala, and I, my stomach was killing me. Like, I, if it was a job, I would have called out. I walked on stage. As soon as I started talking, I was fine. Yeah. I was no longer sick. Were you sick? I've been back sick off so many times on the no. road. Uh, you know, flu. What, you're in your room. You can't move. You have to do morning radio at 6 for two hours. And you come back and you throw up and you lay in bed. And, you know, they're calling you. Are you going to be okay? Yeah, you know, I'm here for my responsibility. I'm going to do it. And then you get to the club, and they make you salsa or water and all this other stuff. And there's something about the adrenaline in the moment that you completely forget about yourself. Definitely. It, Walk on you know, stage, and it's like the best painkiller there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no more anxiety, no more pain. I'm, I'm a yeah, fat guy, so I Yeah, it's a ball game altogether. It's you. Yeah. Now, the other side of it, in the 80s, I woke up on stage once. <laughs> so <laughs> there's both sides <laughs> i need to know what happened what got you to that point how did you wake up on stage 
Kennison and I were on tour. We'd probably been out about a month and a half, and we had a bunch of people fly in and join us. And one of them, you know, scored the coke and the booze and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, I think we'd been up about three days straight because this was a rolling apartment, you know, this bus. It was a rolling apartment. I think it had 12 or 16 bunks. And it was just phenomenal. And you didn't have to stop, you know. We had a driver. We'd just take the party from the auditorium into the bus and go to the next auditorium. Well, the next auditorium could be, you know, five, 600 miles away. So you're in a different state, and you just all you're seeing is, you know, doors to the back of these theaters, and you get bored, and next thing you know, you're just high as all hell. And so anyway, I, I remember somebody going, hey, you want to take a nap before your show? I go, no, if I take a nap, I won't wake up. So I just kept going because I had like two or three more hours before we got to this gig. And that's all I remember. And I woke up <laughs> in front of... 5,000 people, and they're howling, <laughs> they're laughing so hard, and I, I woke up with a microphone in my hand, and, and my dress clothes, my comedy clothes, so I'd obviously dressed for it, went out and did, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of my act, and then laid down on some kind of routine I was doing, and went to sleep. <laughs> How'd the second And I go? woke up, in the audience, I don't know if I'd been asleep for 10 seconds, or an hour, you know what I mean? I, I woke up. I had no idea. All I knew is they were dying laughing, and I got up and didn't know where I was. I looked over to the side of the road manager like, what the hell? Of course, he doesn't know that I'm, I went to sleep. He's looking at me, beating, beating his knee, going like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I, I had no idea what I said or anything, and I, I just had to get through it. <laughs> I commented wow. on it and got off stage and slept for three days. <laughs> So here's here's a slightly different question. You talked about you know there was a lot of drugs involved. When you stopped doing the drugs, how much different was it when you got on stage? So because you know, when you're doing lines, you have so much. It's a, such a different energy than when you don't have lines. So getting on stage was it different, or did you was it okay going drug free on stage for you? Uh, you know, I normally didn't perform on Coke. I mean, I, all I ever did was Coke and booze. Uh, I, I, I wasn't real big. I did the Coke after the shows. I mean, I, I really live by the rule that you celebrate afterwards, you know, okay. it's just that that was a particular story and that all didn't right. happen all the time. <laughs> um, so it was kind of easy for me to, you know, once I quit all the drugs and stuff to, to get back in, it was just a different mindset because the insecurities of, are you going to be as funny? You know, I've just been an alcoholic and a drug addict for some 10 years. Is it going to be good? And then, you know, then after your first show, you realize, God, that was clean. That was, that was right to the point. There was no mess around. So it was really a kind of a, it was a little bit of a battle, but, but not enough that I, that it stained my life and that I, you know, I can remember very clearly. It was just kind of a natural progression. I think that's the one thing you know about do, being in this business for a very long time or any business is you're going to go through different time periods with different personalities. You know, I was a 20 something who was very wealthy and, and, uh, successful, uh, but I didn't have to deal with the fame. You know, I wasn't recognizable. I was just the back end of a very high-end product which was the kinnison years so i could you know i could get screwed up and i could take my days off and i could have my blowouts and i could get my stress out uh, with a, you know a bike and golf and a bunch of other things so it was a natural i just got addicted to other things i got addicted to golf 
you know, I got addicted right. to bicycling, uh, those kind of things. So they just kind of changed uh, gradually and slowly. But you're going to be a lot of people in this business if you've got longevity, you know. And hopefully everybody in this room will have longevity, and obviously you do. So hopefully, Paul, you will have a long, illustrious career outside of rock and roll band places to do comedy, <laughs> or you will master that fear. Paul, those will be funny stories 10 years from yeah. now. Yeah, I've already said I was going to quit a couple times, and every time I say I'm going to do that, somebody calls and gives me a gig. I'm like, oh, I'll do it. Yeah, hey man, you, you, you've been boasting yeah. how you've worked every single week this year. Yeah, I have, they haven't all been paid, but I have been on stage every single weekend this year, and that's the uh, first time that's ever happened to me. That's good. Mm -hmm. I just wish it uh been at uh, better quality venues, I guess I should say. Uh, it happens. More people. Which has, it brings up uh, a good, another point I was going to ask, ask you. Would you. Did you have more fun doing like a theaters in, in front of thousands and thousands of people or the little small comedy clubs or low ceilings in a corner? <laughs> right. Well, you know, let's look at the context of, of the performances. I mean, I didn't create Sam Kennison's success. You know, we were just best friends. So for me, those, I went from being a doorman to performing in front of, you know, 800 people. And then within three months, 1,500, another three months, 25, 35, 55, 10,000, 40,000. Wow. That experience I learned on the cuff, I was, you know, we went from being doorman uh, to Rodney discovering Sam's act that night and that thing he did on the Young Comedian special that, that propelled us right into the game. Uh, so I look back at that as like, you know, that was his story. And I got to be, uh, you know, a phenomenal part of it. And I wrote and I babysat and I performed <laughs> with... You know, a guy who created a voice of, of the times. But that was his story. So when that was all said and done and, and, he, and he dies, uh, I had to recreate myself again in life, which I had done several times before. But then those things that I did were more special because it was my turn. So for me to go to a club and work 60 people, and then, you know, after two years earlier, playing in the same town to 5,500, yeah. Uh, was just as important to me because that was me establishing myself and my style and my voice to a new audience that was going to hear about me and not waiting for me to get off or when I was done, they knew they were going to get Sam. So, you know, it's just growth, you know. I've, I've had a lot of death in my life and I've learned a lot of those things, which is, you know, when it's your turn, uh, it's going to be more important and feel different and be just as special as when it... You know, your friends did stuff, and you were in a movie with your friend and those kind of things. But when it's your movie and you star in it, you know, all the weight's on you and all that pressure and all that excitement is for you. It's what you create out of these situations, you know. So, yeah, I've, I enjoyed all of it. I've enjoyed, I enjoyed that part of my life, but I, I really enjoyed this part, too, which Great. is, to, you know, to, to create something that was out of nothing. But yeah, I mean, during the shows, it's equally as fun doing the, the small, intimate crowds that is the big theaters. Myself, I like, I like small, intimate rooms that are packed with people. I haven't done that many people, like 10,000, but I, you know, I've been in bigger rooms, and it's just not the same feeling to me as it is when it's in a small comedy club, and it feels like there's more people than should be allowed in the room. Right. Now, but you know what? Most of us are comfortable in that situation because we're very creative, and we'd like them to see us think. 
So imagine what happens when you've got so many of those 60, 200-seat little rooms that now love you to death, and your album comes out, and the next thing you know, you've got to perform in front of 25 people, 2,500 people consistently, and it turns into that's your gig. And that'll be fun, too. Hmm. Right now, it's a visit, but if it turns into a you know, normal, natural thing, then that's a blast also. Because then you'd be going, what I like about it is the monitors. I can see my face, and it's 15 <laughs> feet tall next to me, you know? <laughs> Let me ask you something, Carl. When it comes to your writing process, you know, how, how do you work on your material? Do you, do you still write it out? Do you use today's technology, or do you dedicate it No, I write it out. Uh, I'm from an acting background, so if I see an idea that I like, then uh, I'll sit down and I'll write it all out, two, three, four pages for the bit, whatever it is. And, and then I'll read it a bunch of times and then I'll start performing it. I'll slide it into my act. I always, I always leave myself 10 minutes of improv room in my show. So whenever I'm performing, there's always that chunk I get to where you, I just go off and I start talking about all the things that are pre-planned that are put in the back of my head. I just look for the spot to use it in and then I'll develop it verbally and performance wise and let the body, uh, do its thing, you know, because I express myself with all this stuff too. So I just, I just find it. It's got to be very organic and natural to me, and uh, and I'll work on it for a little bit. And if not, I shelve, you know, the the paperwork. But it's usually written out in script form, so I can read it a bunch of times first. Cool. So it's just ingrained in me. So I know every little nuance, every little turn, uh, where the joke should work and where it should flip, and all that other stuff. I, I actually, that's the way I started writing it out. And then I went on stage the first time and I realized just how much stuff I didn't need. And then I came back and I stripped so much out of it. And I went, well, I was only supposed to go up with five minutes. I stripped out half. Now I need to come up with two and a half more minutes to go to another open mic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what will happen through experience is that you'll, you'll get to the point better with your writing. In other words, you, you won't have so much to cut, chop out. Right. Because you'll know what works from experience. Yeah, you'll be you'll able start, to say. You'll start to visualize your act quicker is my point right and, and i kind of see where that happens and i would imagine you do too I, st I start to write and i'm like wait a minute i wrote a whole paragraph and i go right yeah. back and i immediately start editing well the paragraph. I, I figured i write about two hours for every two minutes i use on actually every one minute i use on stage and then half of that doesn't work but it's interesting here talking about this because last time i worked with uh carla at side splitters i think it was the first show of thursday night he opened with it was it was like I remember looking at my watch. Fifteen minutes in, he was doing a bit that he wrote that day. It happened. It was about I don't know if you remember this about the uh, incident with the planes. You're supposed to come in the Wednesday before and do a show oh, in Ocala. Yeah. And uh, I forget what happened. That something with the the planes couldn't fly. I think it was the the stuff happened in Europe with the smoke. Yeah, volcano or something. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember you opened with that. And I remember looking at my watch. I'm like, man, he's going a long time and it's killing. And this is something he had to have wrote today. Right. And it was just yeah, well, you know, all away. that is is that muscle. That muscle's been trained. I've been doing it so long that if I can see it in my head, like sometimes I have my whole plan for my show. I'll walk into, uh, you know, uh, side splitters because, you know, that's a great room. I mean, I'm very – that is one of my favorite rooms. It's very creative. It flows. Uh, I, I connect with that room. So that is one of my favorite rooms. <laughs> but to go in there and have a plan and then five minutes before I go on stage, have a great idea hit me. Well, then that's when you take it up. 
That's when you take that idea right up and just let it go because it's going to be so pure, you know. That's the one time to capture it. That's not like, oh, I better not do it because I plan to do this other stuff. That's the idea that's banging on the door on the top of your head. Let me out, let me out, you know. So to go up there and let it fly, you don't know what you're going to find in it. So people are always, you know, they go, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And you were laughing so hard, too. It's like because I got to hear it for the first time. I saw the idea in my head, and I just expressed it. And, it. and it kept going. I kept tagging it. I kept So, you know, that's the magic of what we do. Right. Definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that point, but I'm still to the point where, you know, I'm getting five-minute guest sets, or sometimes I'm right. on stage for 10 minutes. So you're like, I got to get on there, do my material, and you're almost – I'm not nervous on stage, but I'm nervous to maybe veer away from what I have planned because of if course. it doesn't – You're still working on the memorization and, and then get it out properly and, and to let and see how your timing works and mm-hmm. all that other stuff. That's the beginning. And hopefully but you're you get also back inspired in the club. with this show and meeting all these comics and hearing all these stories to know that that is coming. Yeah. You know, and, and, and especially in the beginning, you, if you're getting a three to five minute guest spot and you try something new and one minute of your three to five is now wasted, you just you kind of look bad in front of the guy. So you always in the beginning, I think you still got to go up with your best four, your best five. And That's right. In Sorry. order to get invited back to that room again and everything else. Now, the other thing I, that I told somebody recently, you just made me think of it. The first five years of doing stand-up to me is like getting a brand-new job. So you're not very proficient the first day at your job. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know the name of your coworkers. Uh, you're not even sure of the right paperwork and the right computer and how to work these fonts and blah, blah, blah. You don't... You're new, but five years down the road, you're the district manager. There you go. That's right. So, you know, it's just, it's just what it is. You do your thing, learn your mic, learn your craft, learn to trust your sense of humor, make yourself laugh, not them, make yourself laugh, and that'll develop to where it'll eventually make them laugh. Right. And then you've always been true to yourself. Now, how much different now is your comedy than it was 15 years ago? Have you told, you know, do you, have you seen a drastic change? Like I know I'm starting uh, yeah, to see. And I, uh, uh, a lot of it is the freedom that I finally grew into. You know, I grew into a freedom on performing to where I can go up fearless at all times now. And I think it came with age and it, you know, it's like doing comedy this long, you get badges, you know, you get these, it's like Boy Scouts, you know, you get these badges. Best improv this week, badge. Uh, <laughs> it's so all funny. All this stuff that you collect in your experiences. And it, then I just, you know, I think it was, it, for me, it's like every five or six years I go through a change. And I hit this other one probably a year or so ago where I can go on free. And it, I'm not, I don't have to hold anything back. I finally proven to myself, you know, that I know what I'm doing and, um, that I own my moment. And I tell all the guys I work with is, you know, when you're on stage, whether it's for five minutes, 15, a half an hour before me, don't be thinking about me. That's your moment. This is your life. This is what you've worked for. So when you go on, you own that stage and you own that responsibility of making that audience forget about their day. That's your job. Because I know I'm going to do mine. Because I live, eat, and breathe this shit. 
you guys go up there and feel <laughs> loose and free and set that bar up so that go. it's just so high I can walk out and just run in it because I've already done all those things. Definitely. Carl, we are down to like the last five, six minutes in the show. And okay. I, nor- I normally like to ask, you know, in the last five or six minutes, I like to. Nine and a half inches. Perfect. <laughs> Would you like to be married to a fat Jewish guy? What? I, I, you said nine and a half inches. I got excited. I said, do you want to be married to a fat Jewish guy? <laughs> I'm going to pass on that answer. There you go. I, I was hoping so. I didn't want to have to take nine and a half inches. I'm, I'm not that fruity. I'm the one sitting next to you. How do I feel? I don't got nine and a half inches to offer. I'm sorry. Um, what I like to do in the last part is I like to really let people you know, tell us what they have coming up. But before I let Paul go, a friend of ours, everybody here in the local Tampa area, uh, Johnny Hobbs, who's a local comedian, and he does, he's done a lot. He's been on the radio show, and he does a lot of independent films. And he's got a show coming up at the Tampa Bay Picture Show where they're going to be doing um, – it's three movies. It's going to be the Cult Movie Mania. Well, that's Friday. It's, yeah, that's Friday, and it's going to be three different movies. It's um, Filthy. Uh, it's showing the event, and it's Ed Woods. Um, okay. Let, let me just let me read the whole thing so it comes out a little bit smoother. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm going through. It's a week from this Friday. Andy Lalino is the gentleman who is who actually produces the event, and it also has the film Filthy, showing that the event as well as others as Ed Woods. He lives in the area, so he would be okay. So he's going to be in. He's good. Oh, that's not what I should be saying. Wow! Basically, go ahead. Uncle Dell, I believe, is is this is one of Uncle Dell's last performances exactly. on film. Which I don't, I don't know if Carl knows who Uncle Dell was. He was a uh, a local you, comic who passed away a few months ago. Who uh, do you know, Uncle Dell? Everyone in this area no. respected. Okay, Uncle Dell traveled around. He had a lot of. He he was kind of a dark comedian, but everybody loved him with a dark sense of humor. But he this is okay. his last movie that he was in, and oh, cool. it's going to be playing this Friday, and it's going to be really cool. It's actually. The Psycho Dish is going to be the name of the movie, and they're going to be able to see it this Friday at the Tampa Picture Show, 9 p.m. Uh, it's on Dale Mabry, so I'm excited about that, and the other couple of movies are going to be there, so it's going to be a good night. Carl, we know you got your one-man show starting, and you're going to do something tomorrow. Is there any other big plans for coming back to the Tampa area anytime soon? Yeah, I, uh, after I get done with this, project of six seven months here to develop the show and we see what we're going to do with it then i'm going to do uh the road a little bit with either half the show or the full show to uh put it in comedy club settings for a little while just to work on you know the second half of that that stuff that we all do when we're taking it out and developing the show so you know bobby jules one of my best friends and we go back way back and uh, he's got the best after hang club that there is in the country so. Yeah, I missed that place. I, I, I stopped by a couple weeks ago. Uh, I really hope to get back in there eventually. I, I miss I miss working there, and I miss, work, miss seeing you there. At, uh, it seemed like you were there like every seven months, at, at, like clockwork. Well, I, I, yeah, I do it about <laughs> every seven months, but, you know, I haven't done it this year. Uh, but, you know, working his club, I got you you're talking about he hasn't been back there in a while. I got kicked out of the comedy store like five times in the <laughs> first five years. Mitzi used to kick me out all the time. You're not funny yet. Go take a three month break uh, and all that, you know. So they just celebrated their 40th anniversary last weekend, and I sent a tape in, and they put me between Letterman and Robin Williams 
<laughs> to show it uh, in front of a you know packed house in the main room to celebrate their 40 years that they've been around. Wow. And so my point is, you just keep banging on the door, man. Don't let anybody stop you from doing what you love to do. It'll happen. Just don't hold grudges. Just keep working on the material. It comes into play. Thank you. Paul, what do you got coming up? I know me and you have a show in what, a week and a half or so together? Um, Wednesday, do- next week. Next Wednesday it is? Wednesday we were doing a show. Are you going to back out because it's in a bar? Or are you going to man no, up? No, I'm going I'm to do it. <laughs> Put a band I, uh, playing while you're on? I agreed to do it. Uh, it it's one of the things where I didn't realize what it was when I agreed to it. But, uh, Sorry I'm about gonna, your I'm going to put myself like to the test. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a restaurant or a kind of a, a maybe not a comedy club, but I thought it might, might be more of a club type environment. Then I found out it was a bar, and bars usually don't do well for me. And then I saw it, and I'm like, it's going to be difficult, but I think I'm going to do it. And uh, Well, know, if Carl can get over New York City, you can get over Largo we're Bar. Gonna, <laughs> some, there's going to be some changes. I've got made. a funny story for you, Paul. I'm doing an Anchorage, Alaska two years ago, and I'm working in one of these 100-year-old bars. And I didn't know that they were going to let people sit at the bar and order drinks while I was on the stage. So that really pissed me off because it's hard to control that environment. Anyway, they were actually pretty good, except for one little midget. It was a little guy <laughs> on the very end. And he kept breaking his glass and stuff, and I, I couldn't even understand him. I thought he was so drunk. He got up and walked right in front of me. He stood in front of me. I realized he wasn't a midget. He was a real Eskimo, and he had on the, the skins and everything else, and he'd come out from the wilderness to be in the town for the weekend, and everybody was getting him drunk. And he stopped right in front of my stage, and he stared straight up into the ceiling, and it just stopped the whole show. And I go, what are you looking at? And he goes, I'm waiting for the great spirit. <laughs> so, so that doesn't happen every day. No, stopped in the middle of your show because somebody's waiting for the ceiling to open up and the great spirit to come and take him. Wow. Yeah. Well, we are down show to business. The, you got to love it. Yes, yeah. you do. We are down to the last minute and a half, so I want to thank well, you very much. Well, push our Facebooks. Yes, we're going to push your Facebook at Carl Above. You also have. CarlaBove.com, where they can go on and they can put their little arrow all over your body to find your biography and everything. Right. Yeah, it's right. A, it's a great little, you got to go over his heart to get to his bio. I, I, I don't know. I think <laughs> you get a picture of his face if the arrow touches his pecker or something. I don't know. Yeah, my, yeah, my underwear, I turn into a skeleton, but you can see my underwear and his last <laughs> press and all that other stuff. It's a great but little I'm website. Just, uh, I'm just getting into my Facebook, so I haven't even been on it a year yet, so I'm really enjoying that stuff. So right. Facebook's where I roll. So check out. You you got anything aside from Facebook, Paul? Uh, MySpace. Oh, Paul's yeah, got a MySpace. <laughs> I like to push those. All right. I got one minute left. I do want to let everybody know you're going to be able to see me. I'm going to get my first uh, hosting gig at Snapper's Comedy Club, Mother's Day weekend. So that's going to be a great experience a great for room. me. I've, nice. been, I've done a couple of uh, guest spots there over the last month and a half, and now Bob Burr's given me the opportunity to – you know, MC, which is the next step, and you know, yep, that's where sure you got to go. I'm, you know, making my way up the ladder, doing what I got to do. Carl, thank you very much for taking some time to call in. Yeah, Paul, hey guys, I tell you what, that was a pretty quick hour. It was. Yeah, it was. I knew it was it goes be. quick, man. When you're having fun, that's right. Well, maybe we'll have to have you call in again. Maybe you'll give us some updates on how your show oh, no, is going. No, I didn't say I'd do it again. I said. Well, let's let's wrap it up on a great laugh. But, uh, thank you very much, Carl, for calling in. Paul, thanks for coming in. Thank you, everybody, thank for guys. tuning in. Appreciate thank you. it too. Success. Thank you. Same to you. Good luck with your show. 
Thank, Thank you. you, everybody, for tuning in to Comedy Slam Radio and the Let's Be Frank show. We'll see you next week. Have a great night. Show from ComedySlamRadio.com, where we put the dot com in comedy.